Amen. Good morning, church. My name is Tellus Fuller. I'm the youth pastor here on staff. And we are in a series called Love Sick, talking about all things relationships. We believe that there has been a great emphasis on uh, relationships in our culture. But sadly, we've done a lot more relationship repair than relationship prepare. That we've done a lot more relationship reparation than relationship preparation. And it's time for us to start preparing. That we are dedicating this whole month, this whole series and beyond to preparing us for relationships. We believe that relationships might be the greatest indicator of your relationship with Jesus, how you treat everybody else. And potentially, Jesus says that the greatest commandment is actually relationship. Potentially the greatest thing and the most important thing to Jesus is relationship. He says in the great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. Relationship. How does God define himself in relationship to us? He calls himself a father. Now, relationships are monumentally important to God, so they need to be monumentally important to us. What we had an opportunity to hear last week from Pastor AJ, an awesome message on marriage. And what we're going to hear today is a message for everybody who wouldn't consider this, themselves in that boat. We're going to talk about singleness today. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7? 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You can turn on your Bibles or turn in your Bibles. The reason we're going to handle this topic is a, a really interesting fact that um, I got a chance to look at. Because if you, if you hear a message on singles... Maybe some of the temptation for people who are married or in relationships would be to say, oh, okay, well, this doesn't apply to me. I saw a, uh, a stat that says 40 to 50% of people who are 18 or older in America are single. 40 to 50%. About half of the adults in America are single. If this message doesn't directly apply to you, I guarantee it directly applies to someone close to you. And this is a biblical truth. And also, I believe that God is going to help us frame a true part of half of our country's experience in a true biblical way that we might be successful in relationships. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7. Just going to read one verse for us, and it says this. Paul speaking, speaking about marriage and singleness. And he says, I wish that all were as I myself am. Paul being single. He says, but each one has been given his own gift from God. One of one kind and one of another. I wish that all were as myself am. But each one has been given their own gift from God. One of one kind and one of another. What I want to title this message this morning is simply Clear Eyes, Full Hearts, Can't Lose. Clear Eyes, Full Hearts, Can't Lose. Never been applauded for a title, but that means it's about to be a great Sunday. <laughs> Will y'all pray with me real quick? Lord, we love you. We expect you to move, God, because where your presence is, Lord, there's the potential for change. God, we believe that your presence is in this place because you promised it. You said where two or more are gathered, you're going to be in the midst of them. So Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place and we say you have our hearts, you have our minds, you have our tendencies, our habits, our relationships. Form us, shape us, mold us, make us more like you, Jesus. We submit ourselves to you, Lord, that you might open our eyes and open our ears to see and hear all that you want to speak. Father, we love you so much. 
And more importantly, you love us. Holy Spirit, empower us to live, look, and love more like Jesus today than we did yesterday. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. There's the, um, probably the greatest television show, no, the greatest television show ever made, Friday Night Lights. And not the movie, there's the TV series. If you watch the series, NBC is like 2008, 2011, like around that time, Friday Night Lights. It's the show of this high school football team in Dillon, Texas, where the main goal of this entire team, the entire town really, is to win the Texas football state championship. You have the most dramatic, intense, unrealistic expression of a high school life you've ever seen in your life. But it's amazing. You get, you get Tim Riggins, who's this like boisterous, like alcoholic of a, of a high school student. And you got Coach Taylor, who's this father-like figure who trains up all these young men. And you got Lila Garrity. And you got, you got Jason Street, who is an all-American football prospect who gets his back broken in the first episode and loses everything. And you got Landry, who like, the spoiler alert, like commits murder. Like these high schoolers are committing like murder. And like there's all of this unrealistic high school expectation. And I love it. And as you watch this show, it's like the highs and lows of high school and relationships and drama and football and tension and love and loss. And you get to this point where you find the team right before they're about to go out on the field. And every single time before they're about to go on the field, Coach Taylor, uh, the main character of pretty much the whole show, he usually probably gives like the Lord's Prayer, right? Because like every high school athletic team always says the Lord's Prayer before they go out and play for some reason. And so they're, they're seeing like the Lord's Prayer, right? And then all of a sudden, as soon as they finish, Coach Taylor says three things to the team before they go out into the tunnel, before they get under the lights, before they go and compete for the state championship. He says, clear eyes, full hearts, and the team responds, can't lose. I want us to do something similar. I'm going to say clear eyes, full hearts, and just indulge me for a minute. I just want you to say like you're in a high school football stadium about to compete for the college, the high school championship, can't lose. If you ever played sports, this is your one time to live out your glory days. And if you don't like this, ignore for 10 seconds. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Whoa, didn't you like that? We all love, you know, okay, come on, okay. I'm happy, I'm happy you agreed with me. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. I believe that if we see singleness rightly, if we feel it rightly, then we can't lose. If we have the right perspective on relationship, if we know it in our heart rightly, I believe that we have no choice but to be successful in relationships. It's not just a cool football motto in Dillon, Texas. I believe that this is something that if we see it, if we shape it by the scriptures, it'll shape our lives. And when you get into relationship series or things like this, it can be very simple to go by isms and cliches and fun stories and cool alliterations. But that's not what we're going for here. I want to take a look at what the Bible has to say about singleness, not what I have to say. Not what culture has to say, not even what church has to say, but what the Bible speaks about this topic. Because that's where we're going to get our success. 
Not from listening to a bunch of self-help and self-improvement seminars and all of our friends who have been in relationships for for all this time and maybe somebody who's been in six or seven relationships. No, no, no. We're going to find success in what the Bible has to say, not just merely what we have to say. We believe here that we know the value of relationship, but we've seemingly lost the vision for it. We know they're valuable. We know they're important, but we don't know what to do with it. We don't know where it's supposed to take us. And we know the value of relationship, but have lost the vision for it. And to singleness, I would take it a step further. I believe that we've lost the value and the vision of singleness in the church today. We don't have a clear vision for it, and we don't value it. We think of it as something to get out of. (laughs) We think of it as the step before you get to where you actually want to be, which is marriage. We think of it, it's just a precursor until your life actually starts. We have elevated, and I believe to an unbiblical standard, the role of marriage in the Christian life. We're speaking things that the Bible doesn't teach. We're saying that this is the goal, this is the aim, this is when your life starts, and all of a sudden it's creating inside of people this this need and compulsion that if I'm not there yet, then I'm not complete, I'm not fulfilled, my life can't start, I can't do what they do, and all of a sudden we have people who are now just desperately trying to get married, not because they even might feel called to it, but because they feel pressured into it. Singleness, we need to see how the, how the Bible treats it, not just how we want to treat it. And it's, it's not just like that we, we've elevated it with our, um, um, our words. It's not like we're actively saying marriage is better than singleness, but we do it with our actions and we do it with our criticisms and we for sure do it with our questions. You find me a, a certain age single and then you, I'll give you 30 minutes before you find out they're single and say, Why? Why aren't you married? What, is everything okay? You don't want to, if, you, if you're a certain age, you don't want to go home for Thanksgiving. You know why? Because you're going to get so many questions saying, what? Don't you, is, is everybody like, is everything okay? What's going on? And everyone's like beating around the topic because we all think that's where everybody's supposed to go. And we push every, and here's the thing. This is not an anti-marriage message. Here's where we go. Paul says both things. Paul is not pitting them against each other. Paul is not saying it's either this or either that. I'm saying that I believe that we have maybe, maybe, just maybe made an idol out of marriage. And we've diminished singleness. And that's not what the Bible teaches. What happens is now people who are single feel like they're culturally out of place and internally out of place. They're not where they want to be culturally because everybody says you're not there yet. And they're not where they want to be internally because they might even have a desire for marriage. So what does that mean? Those people are being attacked from every angle. And they're saying, voices from the outside in are saying, I need to do this. And my even voice from the inside out is saying, I should do this. And they feel trapped and they feel uh, uh, pressured and they feel uh, uh, like they're not there yet. And I would say to somebody, if you are here and you are placing a pressure, maybe even an unnecessary pressure on somebody who's single to get married, stop. I'm speaking, I think maybe for most single people, when I say, if you are telling somebody who is single 
to get married and put pressure on them, kindly please stop. Why? Not because... (laughs) Can I get an amen, right? Let's have some church. Come on now. Not because it's wrong, but because we start to elevate it. We start to say, this is the goal. You're not there yet. Keep going and maybe you'll get to this point. And that's just not what the, we need to go with to what the Bible says, what the Bible teaches. And Paul is not pitting these two against each other and neither am I. I'm saying that there is a gift. What does Paul use? He says that actually each one has been given a gift. First Corinthians 7 is 7, 7. I wish that you were as I am. Paul is single. The most, the greatest apostle to ever live is single. I wish that you were like I was, but each one has been given their own gift. Singleness and marriage. One of one kind and one to another. He's saying that you've been given a gift. And if you are single and you have that desire to be married, I would say to you that God knows you so intimately. He forms your inward parts and he knows the beginning from the end and he knows the desires of your heart and dare I say cares about them more than you do. And your life does not start when you get married. You do not gain a purpose once you get a spouse. That the Lord, he knows and he is honored when you give it to him. And what I want us to do for the next few minutes is I want us to take a look at what the Bible says so we can frame it rightly. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. If singleness is the problem, marriage can't be the solution. And if singleness is the problem, then that's the problem. The Bible doesn't say singleness is a problem. If we believe that singleness is a problem, something to get out of, then that's the problem. I heard, um, I heard it said that um, marriage doesn't, uh, what does it say? I, I've heard it said that marriage doesn't solve your problems. It just puts a ring on them. <laughs> I can say that because I'm not married. <laughs> you just commit yourself to the problems. You're not going anywhere and you're adding somebody on top of that. Marriage doesn't get rid of anything on the inside of you. It just commits you to everything on the inside of somebody else. Marriage doesn't get rid of any of your problems. It only commits you to them. And marriage does not change who you were. It just enhances who you are. That's all it's going to do. Now, Paul loves marriage. I love marriage. Paul is saying that there is a gift to both of these things. And we need to see these things rightly. And here's where it can be so, so important to understand. Because if we start to place marriage as this prize, this goal, this end fulfillment, and we say that marriage is the goal, what we're saying is that Jesus was a failure. Have you ever thought about that? That Jesus was never married? If we say marriage is the goal, then Jesus failed. And none of us would say that. The most secure, satisfied man to ever live, the most successful person to ever live was single. And if we start to set up this goal as I can only be as much as I ever want to be once I get married, we're ignoring that the greatest man person to ever live was never married. The world's greatest impact came from a single person. So the goal can't be marriage. 
It can't be the standard. It is a good gift from God, but it cannot be the ultimate goal. Singleness is a gift. And marriage is a gift. I think that Paul would actually disagree with how the American church has treated marriage. I think that he would say, you guys have placed way too much of an emphasis on this being the end goal. Why? Because he says, I wish that you were like I am. I wish you were single. it, It would probably be better for you if you were like me. Now, he's not saying this. He even prefaces it. He says, this isn't coming from God. I'm not saying God wants everybody to be single. He's saying this is coming from me. Why? Because you can actually have a a, a split attention when you're married versus when you're single. That's what Paul says. He says when you're married, you have your attention focused on God and you have your attention focused on your spouse. And he says those are good attentions to have. You should take care of those. You should care for those. It should worry you. You should be concerned about the the health and the well-being, the cares of your spouse. It should involve your mind. That is a good thing. He's not saying get rid of that or that it's bad at all. He's saying that you have a split attention. And what he's saying, if you're single, you don't have that split attention. You don't have the attention that has to be focused on another person's well-being and health and dreams and desires and cares and needs and wants. He's saying, no, 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 you don't have all of those things to worry about. You can have a singular focus on God. There is a benefit to singleness. There's a gift in singleness that is not better than marriage. It's different. One has been given a gift, one to one and one to another. Singleness is not a problem. And if we start to take stances that the Bible never took, we start to treat people the way that Jesus never did. Saying, this is the goal, this is where you should be, this is what you should do, and then we start to treat people as if they're not there yet. And Jesus never did that. So if we take the Bible and we don't take into consideration what it says, we're going to start to take stances that it doesn't preach or teach. And we're going to start to treat people the way that Jesus never intended for them to be treated. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Clear eyes. If we have a right perspective, we have to first start with a right outlook on singleness. It's, 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 it's singleness is kind of like, it's like the nose on your face. Like you, you, it's always there and it's because it's so close and so intimate, you really can't see it rightly anymore. And, and, and you're so acquainted with it and it's been there the whole time, but now you're kind of like ignoring it or you dislike it or, or you don't care about it. But the thing that Paul says about singleness is that this huge word is that it's a gift. Now, a gift is not a gift because you like it. A gift is a gift because it was given. Now, you might not like the gift, but you don't have the receipt. (laughs) You might not like the gift. You know what I'm saying? You want to return it. You say, I don't know. I didn't ask for that. It wasn't on my list. I I, I didn't. God, if I could get a different gift, if I could exchange it, you don't even have to do the work. Give me the receipt and I'll go find a new one that I actually asked for. But that's not, that's not, that's not, it's not, it's, it's not a gift because you like it. It's a gift because it was given. And a gift from God is a gift for God. And God has given us this gift on purpose and for a purpose. And you might not like the gift. You might not even consider it a gift. But that does not mean that it isn't a gift. Some of us literally treat this thing like a disease. 
Like it's something to get rid of. Like, I, man, it's just, I was just born with it, but hopefully I'll go get cured soon by this spouse. And that'll fix all of my problems and I'll get out of the condition that I was in and I'll go towards something else. And some of us really think that we're like suffering from single, I mean, sorry, in a season of singleness. <laughs> you guys heard that? You know, that Christianese language, I'm in a season of singleness. Like we, we always say like, oh, I'm in a season of this. Like, Pastor, have you ever said you're in a season of marriage? <laughs> no, because it doesn't, it's, it's kind of silly, isn't it? I'm in a season of marriage right now. And we like to categorize things in seasons and like, oh, I'm just here for now, but one day I'll be out of it. And one day I'll get to a better season and like spring is coming. And, 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 but no, <laughs> we have this, this idea that it's something to get rid of, something to get out of, something to graduate into marriage that when I'm really, really good and I'll be totally fulfilled when I get to this spot and we try and get out of it, but we need to pray to see singleness the way that God has given it, which is a gift. Clear eyes, to see it with clear eyes, not how the culture sees it, not how the world sees it, not how your parents see it, not how your friends see it, not even how your church might see it, but how God has given it, which is a gift. We need clear eyes to see it because a gift from God is a gift for God. Here, I'll say this, every gift that God has given you, I'll tell you the reason and the purpose for it. Whatever it is, if, if you have some talent or, or, or strength or proclivity and you're really good with numbers or you're an athlete or you're, you're super compassionate or you can problem solve or you can manage things or you're really good at, at construction or, or art or teaching or whatever, every gift that God has given you, designed and built on the inside of you, it is used for two things. One, to glorify God and two, to be good to others. That's why you have a gift. Singleness is a gift. Are you glorifying God with it? And are you being good to others? It's so simple. Are you glorifying God? And are you being good to others? I mean, can you, can you imagine that you've received this gift from God? God hand-wrapped it and made you on purpose and for a purpose and said, you're going to accomplish all of these things in life and here is the way that I'm going to involve you in my plan and purpose for your life and that we have this gift and we're holding it in our hands that God has hand-wrapped and given to us and that we say, God, I don't want this. Give me something else. We start treating God's blessing like a burden. And we say, God, I didn't want that. And we start to try and get rid of the thing that God handcrafted and gave to us. I can only imagine what that does to the heart of God. I can only imagine how that might grieve God. That we just say, God, I don't want the gift that you gave me. I don't want the blessing because I don't think it's a blessing. I'm going to get rid of it. I want to get out of it. I want to get rid of it. I want to put it anywhere else, get out of my circle. I don't want this thing. And I can only imagine the heart of God just looking at us, holding the precious gift that he's given us and tossing it aside for some future hope. Clear eyes is what we need to see this gift of singleness as, this, this beautiful gift that I believe God wants us to use and not get rid of. He wants us to use it and not waste it. 
So many times we can have it and kind of just like put it off to the side and just say, this is where I'm at and put it over here, have it on that side until we get married and then I don't have to think about it anymore because the problem is solved. And we never end up using the gift that God gave us. We just have it like rotting away on a shelf somewhere that we don't have to think about. And I wonder what it would look like if we were a church that used all of our singleness up, every single drop of it before we got married. That there was no single left in you by the time you got married. That you were emptying and using the gift. It was worn out. It was used. It was put to work for the glory of God and for the good of others instead of putting it away on a shelf to rot away until it's gone. You see, in the world, singleness is almost related to selfishness. But in the kingdom, singleness is related to selflessness. You see, in the world, singleness is like, oh, bro, those are the best years of your life. You can do whatever you want to do. Like, you ain't got to worry. You can stack your money before the ball and chain hits. You can move wherever you want to go. You can, I can say these things because I'm not married. You can, like, do whatever you want to do. You can live your life. You don't have to commit to anybody. Nobody's going to tie you down. Like, it's all about me, 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 me. How can I be satisfied? What dreams can I fulfill? What can I do? What can I accomplish? And here's the thing. That is just inward facing, It's not glory facing. It's not pointing to God. It's not helping others. It's saying, I'm just going to use all that I got. I'm I'm, 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 going to do this before I'm tied down. So when I'm tied down, I don't really got the urges to do nothing anymore. And I'm good. And I feel great. And, And here's the thing. In the kingdom of God, that's not what it is. That is not it. It is not something to use on yourself. It is something to use for the glory of God and the good of others. It's something to be used up. You see, each gift comes with its own grace. Each gift is going to come with its own grace. And who is getting the glory from your singleness? Who's getting the glory from it? If we are inward facing and trying to accomplish everything we've ever wanted before things get serious or life gets this way, what it does is that we're trying to glorify ourselves. And I wonder... Why aren't we a bunch of, of, of single people who are using our singleness to the glory of God? Like, why aren't we praying until like four in the morning because we don't have to w- worry about keeping somebody else up in the bedroom? Why aren't we giving way more than we should because I don't have to ask somebody before I give generously? Why aren't we just staying up and reading our Bibles over and over and not feel like we're neglecting somebody else? Why aren't we taking every chance that we have to go on every mission trip? Because I don't have to worry about if I'm leaving the wife and the kids at home. Why aren't we trying to serve in church at every chance we get? Because I can stay out till midnight because no one's at home waiting for me. Why aren't we using our singleness to the glory of God and not just spending it on the weekends at clubs? I didn't want to say it, but I had to say it, right? Why aren't we using it for the glory of God? Why aren't we? We're the people that we have so much to give to God and it's not better. I'm not comparing the two and saying one is good, what is bad. It's different. It's a gift. And I'm saying that God has given us a perspective in 1 Corinthians to see it as a gift. And and here's the thing. As I was studying uh, this whole passage, the word that Paul uses for gift of singleness and gift of uh, uh, marriage is this word charis, like the, the word that we get charisma. And it's actually the same word that Paul uses when he's speaking about the gifts of the spirit. 
So, so when Paul is speaking about like uh, prophecy and healing and, and speaking in tongues and discerning of spirits and, and the gift of faith, all of these gifts that God gives by his spirit for us to use, the same word that Paul uses for those, he actually uses for singleness and for marriage. Now, we know that it takes this uh, uh, faith to use spiritual gifts. Like, we love that. We're like, yeah, I got big faith. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe that God is going to heal. I believe that God is going to speak. I believe that God is going to do this. We have the faith for miracles, the faith for healing, the faith for prophecy, the faith for discerning of spirits. We have the faith for all of these things. But it's so interesting to me that we use this chorus, this gift of faith for the spiritual gifts, but we never use the gift of faith for singleness. You see, each gift comes with its own grace. And as this gift of singleness, in the same way that the gifts of the Spirit require faith to use, dare I say that singleness requires faith to use. You have, your, have you ever put faith to your singleness? Like, have you ever in faith been single? Actively? Not, no, no, I'm not saying like, no, I'm a Christian. Of course I have faith. Like, yeah. Like, what do you mean? That's, yeah. No, have you ever believed God for your singleness? Not for marriage. We, we have so much faith to be a good spouse, but not to be a good single. We have, man, oh, I'm going to marry the best looking dude. Like, he's going to have this much money, and he's going to be like this, and his family's going to be picture perfect, and we are going to have these kids, and they're going to look like this, and they're going to be D1, and we're going to live in this neighborhood, and we're going to relate all the time, and he's not going to be able to keep his hands off me, and oh, I'm going to marry this girl, and she's going to be so cool. She's going to be able to let me hang with the guys, and she's going to make me feel so, and she's going to push me to my dreams, and oh my, my, I know God, she's got a girl waiting for me right now. Like, I'm just preparing, because I know God's bringing my girl and we have all this faith to be married but we never apply that faith to be married in the faith to be single we only leave it for the future we leave it for out there over there in the future and we have the faith to be a good married person but we don't have the faith to be a good single person i wonder where is where's the faith in your singleness, because all of these things require the help of the Holy Spirit in the same way to use spiritual gifts. It requires faith in God to be a good single. I wonder if the reason why relationships are so hard for some of us is because we're trying to live out God's will for us in our own strength. God's will is that you're single and you're using your gift of singleness for the glory of God and for the good of others, but we use it in our own strength trying to accomplish what we feel like we need instead of what God has purposed it to be. <laughs> gift of singleness. You know, I was um, looking in, it says the, the, the third most asked question on Google at the end of 2021 was this, how to be happy alone. The third most asked question on Google at the end of 2021 was how to be happy alone. Now, that might probably had something to do with the pandemic, right? It's like, man, we haven't gone to the house a lot and we've experienced so much like isolation and things like that. But I think that it speaks to an internal issue as well. That we're trying to figure out how to be happy with me. How to be happy by myself. And it tells me that this isn't just a spiritual problem. This is actually also a cultural, cultural problem. 
And I believe that Jesus speaks to this. What, what he says actually is Jesus says uh, and teaches us how, to be, how not to be anxious in Matthew. He says, don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow has enough worries of its own. He says, tomorrow is going to worry about itself. But instead, we should be present content in today. And as much as that is a teaching about how not to be anxious, I, is, I also believe that it's a teaching in how to be content. Because... Tomorrow has enough worries of its own, and I have never met somebody who is content believing that satisfaction lives in tomorrow. I've never met that person. who says, I'll be satisfied when? They don't exist. They're not content. Why? Because contentment, like Jesus, I believe, was teaching, doesn't live in tomorrow. Contentment only belongs to today. And so what we have is we have some people who are always future-facing, saying, when this happens, I'll be happy. And because we're always thinking about then, we can't be happy now. Jesus is trying to teach us how to be content. Instead of always thinking that my life will start, this will happen, I'm going to have this in the future, Jesus is trying to teach us to be content now. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Full hearts. It's, it's this truth that whoever holds your heart holds your health. Whoever holds your heart holds your health. I honestly believe that sometimes relationships fail and they don't go the way that we want them to go because we start treating people like we treat God. What do I mean? That we can take a heart that is hurt and broken, and and half-filled, and bleeding, and fractured, and scared. And we can bring that heart to God, and God will receive it with open arms, and he will restore it, and redeem it, and clean it, and fulfill it, and fix it, and prosper it. But we take that same mentality of taking a broken, half-filled, fractured, insecure, scared, bleeding heart to a person and say, fix me. And that, that isn't bad. It's just misplaced. You're supposed to take your broken, scared, bleeding, half-filled, fractured, insecure heart to someone, but it's not supposed to be to a man or a woman. It's supposed to be to God. And God will take it and restore you and rebuild you and redeem you and heal you and clean you up. And that's the beauty of who God is. But the issue and why we hurt so much is because we start to treat people like we treat God. And we take that to them and we say, I know I just got out of a six-year relationship and I haven't processed anything. But you want to you wanna be in a relationship? You want to get together? He said, I know I haven't dealt with anything that happened in my past, but you want to make out? You want to give me a hug? I didn't know if I was allowed to say make out, so I switched it to give me a hug. <laughs> we have all of these things, right? It's like we don't know what it is, right? And we take this like broken thing and we start bringing it to people instead of to God. It's not wrong. It's misplaced. Whoever holds your heart holds your health. And oftentimes we've been placing our heart in the hands of a man instead of the hands of God. 
And that's why our relationships are so fractured and broken and sad. And here's the thing. We, here's, we, we, we make this, this um, idea in our minds, and I don't know where we got it from, to, to think that this other person is supposed to fill my tank instead of enlarge my tank. And that you are supposed to always satisfy me, always push me towards my dreams, always make sure I'm cared for, never make sure, make sure I'm, I'm never hungry, make sure that I'll, I'll, I finish this, pay for that, do this, satisfy me, always hold my hand, always tell me I'm pretty, always push me towards my dreams, always be grateful, never be patronizing. And we have all of these ideas of what this person is supposed to be to us. And like what Pastor AJ said last week, that person doesn't exist. They're not real. And so what we have to do is we don't have to stop thinking that somebody is supposed to fix us. We just have to stop thinking that it's man. And we have a full heart and we give it to God. Whoever holds your heart holds your health. Proverbs 23, 26 says it this way. He says, my son or my daughter, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. My son, my daughter, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. What's interesting about this passage is that he says, give me your heart. Essentially saying, God won't take what's not given to him. God will not take what is not given to him. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. You see, the safest place for your heart to be is in the hands of the one who created it. So many of us, we're, we're holding our own hearts. Or maybe our boyfriend or our girlfriend are holding our own hearts. And we're, we're, we're hoping in them. Because whoever holds your heart holds your health. And here's the thing. Like, I know that sounds very, very, like, romantic. Right? It's like, whoever holds your heart holds your health. Like, uh, 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 um, um, whoever, uh, whoever holds your heart holds your health. And the safest place for your heart to be is in the hands of the one who created it. And I get that that's like, can be kind of trivial. And it can be like, yeah, okay, cool, that's romantic. But like, what does that mean? And, and I don't really get it. And that, that's pretty hard. Because the truth of the matter is, it is very, very scary to take your heart out of your own hands and to give it to God. It takes enormous courage to take your heart out of your own hands and to give it back to God. That's a, that's a courageous thing to do. Because in our world, that is not something you're supposed to do. You carry it. You hold it. You take care of it. You don't trust somebody else with it. Or if you do, you just throw it out at the window. You say, hey, hold, hold me. Take care of me. Fix me. And here's the thing. It's going against culture. It's swimming upstream. It's changing the direction of your life and going against what everybody else says to take your own heart and say, I'm not good enough to hold this thing. I don't think I know what it really needs. I know what I want, but I don't think that's what I need. And so I need to give it to the one who knows what I want and knows what I need and has the power to give me both. So I'm no longer going to hold my own heart. I'm going to give it to the one who created it. My son, give me your heart. And let your eyes observe my ways. It takes courage to give your heart to God. Song of Solomon, one of my favorite verses in the scriptures, it says this, Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 4, and then 6 through 7. It says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it's time. 
He says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, and jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Song of Solomon, and Solomon is teaching here, the strength of love, how powerful it is, how borderline dangerously powerful it is. And because love is so powerful, what he says is, I adjure you, I beg you, please don't awaken love before it's time. Don't do it because you will never be able to quench it. You're not going to be able to put it down. You're not going to be, it's going to be so powerful. And Solomon is not saying that love should not be. He's not saying that it's dangerous. He's saying that it's dangerously powerful. And the Bible teaches that this truth about love is actually saying that love is safest in committed places. So within the context of marriage, specifically what Song of Solomon is talking about, that's where your love is safest. That's where it belongs. That's where you can let it go. It's because in the context of marriage and when you have safe boundaries, that's where your love can actually let it run wild. And we hear something like this and you might be saying, great, that's cool. I get it. Don't awaken love before it's time. And love is dangerously powerful and love is safest in committed places. And I love that for you, Pastor Tellus. And it says, don't awaken love before it's time. But here's the thing. My love is wide awake. (laughs) So what do I do now? Like, it, it, right? Like, you're saying, like, okay, cool, but I, I want to be loved. <laughs> My love is awake. What, what do I do? Well, I would say, how else do you put something to sleep that's awake? You stop stimulating it. You stop stimulating it. I mean, if you have a kid, you know that. How do you put your kid to sleep, get ready for bedtime? You stop stimulating them. I mean... For some of us, it is as simple as you've been watching every season of The Bachelor. And you're like, I don't know why I'm so lonely. For some of us, we watch every Hallmark movie. And we're like, he's going to be in a coffee shop and he's going to have a beard and he's going to have a dream that he hasn't fulfilled yet. But then I'm going to meet him. And once I meet him, we're going to fulfill our dreams together. (laughs) Some of us have an app. And we're saying, I don't know why I don't feel valued. Why is your heart awake? It's because you keep stimulating it. You keep poking it and prodding it and keeping it awake and say, love here and love's there and this, is, and this is what you want. And we keep feeding the thing that's keeping our hearts awake. And this love is dangerously powerful. Why is your heart awake? Why is your love awake? Dare I say it's because you're keeping it awake. You keep stimulating it with things and shows and Instagram and conversations and books and apps. And you, every time you look at somebody, you look at their finger to see if they're married, to see if they're a potential spouse or not. And you're always looking at all of these different things and you start to feel like, why am I so riled up all the time? It's because you're always looking for it. There, um, 
uh, you, you, know, you know those pandemic purchases you make that you weren't sure if they were the right decision, but you still made those pandemic purchases? Mine were these. So these are blue light blocking glasses. Um, what they're supposed to do is you have these glasses and they're supposed to uh, let all, in all light except for like one frequency of light, which is like a blue light, which apparently is this like stimulating, uh, gives you like eye strain and like headaches. And, and, and since we were all looking at screens all the time, I was like, oh, great, I'll buy these glasses and, and my eyes won't be as much strained and I'll be able to go to sleep easier and my, I won't have so many headaches. And, and it's what it's supposed to do is it's supposed to stop blue light one light, not all light, but one light from entering into your eye. And if you're smart and you know that these don't work, please don't tell me because I want to keep wearing them in placebo effect. So we have these glasses and what the role of these glasses are to do is not to let in, not to stop letting in all light. It's just to stop letting in one light. Some of us in the similar way we don't need blue light blocking glasses. We need bay blocking glasses. <laughs> it's a stupid joke. I know. It's bad. It was bad. It was not good. I didn't like it either, but I had to say it. <laughs> it wasn't good. But you know what I mean? We've let in all of these things. And I'm not saying you've got to cancel your subscription, stop talking to your friends, throw away your phone, and just be a monk and a nun. No, I'm saying, what do you need to do to stop stimulating your heart that is keeping it awake and therefore keeping you hurt? What are, you, what are you doing to stimulate, stimulate your heart? And how can you stop stimulating the thing that is keeping your love so wide awake? Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. You see, if we see it rightly, and we know it rightly, we feel it rightly, there's no way that we will be unsuccessful in relationships. There is no way. And if you think I'm wrong... I would challenge you to say it's because we're not measuring by the right metric. We're measuring the benefit of obedience by the outcome of the blessing. That if I'm obedient to God, God will give me a spouse. If I'm pure, God will bring me a boyfriend. If I'm really good with my money and I lead well and I'm not doing crazy stuff, then God will bring me a girlfriend. If I do it your way, God, you need to do it my way. We measure by the wrong metric. We say it's successful if I get married, but marriage can't be the goal. We're measuring by the wrong metric. And we're saying if I'm a single, then I'm unsuccessful. If I'm single, then I lose. And that's just not what the Bible teaches, it's just not in the Bible. We can't lose. If we have clear eyes and full hearts, I truly believe that we can't lose. Because you can measure by one of two things. You can measure by comparison or you can measure by devotion. You can measure by what's going on over there and with those people and how they live and what their life looks like. Or you can measure by devotion. See, measuring by comparison will always leave you feeling cheap. Always. You're always going to be looking over here and wondering why you're not there. And measuring by comparison will always tempt you to negotiate the price. When I was in uh, Mexico, we had a mission trip. And as we're on this mission trip, one day of the mission trip, we had an opportunity to uh, 
go into like the farmer's market, essentially. So there are a bunch of people selling a bunch of things for like tourists and things like that. And so uh, what happened is I've been there before. And so I knew like the art of bartering, right? So you go to a clerk or a store or a shop or whatever, and they have this hoodie or the shirt or mug or whatever that you want. And so you go up to them, you say, how much is it? And they'll say, oh, it's like $12. You're like, all right, cool. And you buy for $12. But then you look down the other street, 30 feet to the next cart. And that person has the exact same shirt for $10. Right. And so as you get this truth, I was telling the students, I was like, hey, hey, so when you go in here, like the prices aren't set. So make sure before you buy it right away, see what they're selling it over here. And they're like, OK, cool, cool, cool. Got it, got it, got it. And so you have a student every now and again would go and buy a hoodie that they loved for $15. And they come back and say, oh, my gosh, I got this hoodie. And then they would see their friend the other, the, the, an hour later and they'd be like, oh, we have the same hoodie. And he'd be like, yeah, bro, can you believe it's only $8? And the kid's like, but I... Would you? Oh, no. And then they realized, like, man, I paid way too much for this. And all of a sudden, they're like, man, I should have gone over to that store. If I had gone 30 feet over that way, I could have got the same thing for way cheaper. You see, when you measure success by comparison, you're always going to be tempted to negotiate the price. And I hope you know I'm not talking about sweatshirts in Mexico, but now your body. When you're measuring by comparison about how she's getting all the dates and about he has all the followers and everybody wants to hang around them and you look at their life and their success and their relationships and you start to see that they're selling the same product that you have but for a lot cheaper. And then you see them. And what does comparison do? Comparison tempts you to negotiate the price, which means you see that they got it this way, and God, you know that's what I want. So if I just keep looking over here, I get tempted to lower the price of what I know is valuable, but what I really, really desire in my heart. And we start to think and barter with our bodies because we really, really have a desire to get it. And we say, I know if I just did that, then I could get the guy. I, here's the thing. The issue is I know if I did that, I would get the girl. I know if I did this or acted this way or talked this way or dressed that way or posted this way or went there or did that. I know I could get the guy. I know I could. But let me tell you, we can't measure by comparison because comparison will always leave you feeling cheap. You will always be tempted to negotiate your price. You will always be tempted to look at them and say, I need to do something different because if I don't, they're just going to go over to the next booth and get the same thing for cheaper. But my Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? It says that you have been bought with a price. That price was the price of Jesus Christ's life. So therefore, honor God with your bodies. I would beg you, if you're getting tired and you just want some attention or you just want somebody to love you and you're looking over the fence and measuring the success of your relational life by comparison to somebody else, I beg you, do not lower your price. Do not lower your standards. Strengthen your patience. Do not look and say, I just need to do this or else I'll never be fulfilled. No, look at Jesus. The one who was single for his entire life, who was the most satisfied, secure, and successful person to ever live. Don't start to measure the success of your relationships by the outcome of the blessing. 
We need to start measuring by a different metric. And here's the truth. Paul actually gives you the truth and the purpose for your singleness. What he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 35, he gives you the answer and the whole point to why you're single. It says 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 35. He says this, I say this not for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure, listen to this, your undivided devotion to the Lord. Do you want to know why you're single right now? It's so that you can be undividedly devoted to God. That's the point. That's the point. It's not so that you can be miserable. God's not some God who just wants you to be, 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 be miserable and sacrifice and hurt until you get the good thing. No, God is saying you can have an undivided devotion to God and then that will be the success of your relational life. If we see it clearly with clear eyes, if we know it clearly with full hearts, we can't lose because I'm not a person who's gonna measure by comparison. I measure by devotion. And if I fully devote myself to God, I know my relational life is gonna go accordingly was purpose. Therefore, I can't be unsuccessful relationally. I can't lose. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Would you pray with me? Lord, we love you. God, and we honor you. God, and we're asking that you would give us, God, not just a good Sunday, not just a moment of a restructuring of our framework, but God, God, would you change our minds? Would you change our minds to see it rightly as a gift, truly as a gift with its own grace? God, would you fill our hearts to know that whoever holds our heart holds our health? God, we want to be courageous today and trust you with our heart, knowing that you know what we want and what we need. And it's safer with you. God, and help us measure by a different metric. Not to start to judge the success of our relational life or the failure of our relational life by comparison or even, Lord, by our own desire and what we've called ourselves to be. But Lord, can we measure by devotion, by our commitment to you, our use of a gift for you, the grace that you've given us to be a single for you. God, knowing that it takes faith and faith is from you. We can be devoted to you, Jesus. Because you were first devoted to us. <laughs> you were first devoted to me. And you know me inside and out. I truly believe that there's a repentance that God is bringing to some people. And it's not, <laughs> it's not this massive overwhelming feeling. It's that subtle whisper from God that says, do you see it right? It's not going to come in this massive heart-pounding moment. It might come in the quiet whisper from the Holy Spirit. When you acknowledge that you've not seen it 
rightly, that you've despised your gift. You've wanted to get rid of it. And today God is saying, you can change your mind. By his spirit, you can change your mind. To see singleness rightly. To know it in our hearts rightly. God's promise is a successful relational life.